0: Hello, and welcome to our first fully mic'd-up episode of the UnSouthern Podcast. My name is Michael McCoy, and I'm coming to you straight from downtown Atlanta for what I believe is the 10th episode. I said I was going to start counting them uh, and keeping track again, but I failed (laughs) a little bit. Um, After a bit of a break, I'm back. And this past week has not been an easy one for me from a blogging standpoint. As opposed to the more shoot the breeze posts that I have been doing up to this point. For UnSouthern, unfortunately, something very tragic happened a little over a week ago. I guess a week and a half ago now. With the... um, Murders and that were that took place north of Atlanta in, uh, I think it was Cherokee County, primarily with the spas, and uh, you know I'm not going to dwell on the particulars of that, and that's something I also point out in the blog the blog post itself, but. I felt the need to do a detour and spend the week examining something that doesn't get examined a lot, which is anti-Asian bias in the South. So my intent here is to go through all three parts in this one podcast, because this is an issue of currency. And I don't think I would, it would feel right to put this off and do and and record this uh, podcast in the order that it was posted on my blog uh, because currently I'm running a few weeks behind when I'm actually uh, writing the blog posts, and I don't really don't want to draw it out, and I also don't want to do a lot of you know shooting the breeze so much. I kind of want to stick to the subject and uh, and stay on task with this because it is a serious issue, and I, I don't ever want to. Um, I don't want to mix the more light-hearted tone that I've struck in other blog posts and and, and inject that into this one because this one's a little more serious and a little more direct. So the primary thing I'll be doing is reading all three of these blog posts from this week back to back to back. There's been a lot of debate over whether the attacks were actually demonstrative of anti-Asian bias. And I think, to me, that sort of misses the point. The fact is, the Asian community is the one that bared the brunt of this, and the one that that in 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 real life feels threatened, in many cases, by what happened here. And regardless of whether these particular attacks were specifically race motivated, there's a there's a circumstantial issue to them about. Why um, certain people gravitate towards certain industries and why certain people patronize those industries. And it, it's all part of a larger social construct. And you know, it, it may seem like contortionism to some people to 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 make that necessarily about race. Uh, it's the whole structure. It's really that's really how it works. it's It's really, you know, that's how structural racism is defined. It's a set of circumstances which ends up putting certain people at a disadvantage because of who they are and what they what they choose to do with themselves, um, whether that be professionally, personally, um, philosophically, geographically. Like every every decision decision that they make um, has a down the road impact and it, it's, it's all sort of a complex interplay. Um, but regardless of the particulars of this incident, there's just some things that I wanted to look at, and, and uh, I didn't have nearly as much to say about this as I thought I did. A lot of this is very theoretical because my own experience with examining issues of race as regards the Asian community in the South just not some somewhere I've been it's not some place I've it's not a, a, a mental landscape I have traversed I guess that was overly poetic but you know it's it's just something that I'm just starting to grapple with myself and I took the time this week to do so so without further ado here are the three blog posts I made this week three-part series on uh, anti-Asian bias so Part one of the South's anti-Asian problem, part one is the race paradigm. Last week, and at this point it's been two weeks ago, given that today is Sunday as I'm reporting this, the nation was stunned by a series of murders in the Atlanta area. A young man targeted three massage establishments and killed eight people, six of whom were Asian women. It is not my practice to become engaged in the particulars of these types of crimes, and I have no intention of dissecting this tragedy either. The convergence of circumstance, opportunity, and demographics resulted in a disproportionate impact on one particular community, regardless of how we frame the killer's state of mind. In light of the past week's events, I'd like to spend some time discussing something that doesn't get a lot of attention, Southern attitudes toward and bias against Asians. All except the most fierce denialists will admit that the South has an issue with racism. Given the history of slavery, segregation, and post-segregation nonsense, like the current state of the criminal justice and public education systems, we understandably place anti-black racism front and center in these discussions. We do not allot much time or energy to other groups. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. This is one of Dr. Martin Luther King's most quoted statements, and with good reason. The South has made black people its bullseye target for numerous generations, but the psychic effect of such a race-driven system on people of other backgrounds is also significant. Put another way, when we decide that black people occupy a certain designated space in our social sphere, we also imply that any other racial group has a designated place as well. Segregation may not have been wielded as fiercely against Asians, but in a race-based society, there are still roles and positions they are expected to fill. According to statisticalatlas.com, 3.2% of Southerners are of Asian descent. That's fewer than 4 million out of over 120 million people with much higher concentrations in certain urban areas, such as the 11% Asian population in Gwinnett County, Georgia, which is just north of Atlanta and in between Atlanta and where uh, these, these murders occurred, um, 11% Asian in that area in concentrations like that, this means that many of the less populated areas have much lower percentages of people with an Asian background. The point here is that Asians are treated as exceptions in the South. In the racially structured world we have inherited here, Asians are expected to be in certain places, restaurants, personal service businesses, and in science-based and academic professions. This is an awkward conversation to have, but it is a necessary conversation as long as these expectations continue to exist. And I maintain that they do. If you are a fellow Southerner or even an American, examine your own assumptions. If you saw an Asian man collecting your trash, would you take note of that as an odd occurrence? Even if you don't have a racist bone in my body, which is one of my least favorite sayings, do you still make note of something like that as an oddity? There's a razor-thin line between you just don't see that very much, and that's just the way things are. They are... Both mutually reinforcing statements which preserve the status quo. I expect some readers at this point in the conversation to ask the question that has been asked for decades now. Shouldn't the Asian community be flattered with the status we have assumed for them? Asians, after all, represent the model minority. Asians have the highest average household income and the highest proportion of college graduates of any racial or ethnic group in the U.S. They embrace innovation, entrepreneurship, and hard work, or at least that's the story that the statistics appear to tell. Why is this bad? Demonstrating competence and prosperity is by no means bad, but when we, and by we, I largely mean white people, when we lean on these statistical indicators, instead of knowing and understanding the reality and the people behind those numbers, we risk making a lot of inaccurate, Inferences. Chief among these inaccuracies is to write off anti-Asian racism as inconsequential. They can laugh at our racism all the way to the bank, right? Well, when that racism manifests the way it did last week, not so much. So that was that was part one, where basically the upshot of the entire part one was um, that racism is, is racism, and you can only run so far away from it. Part two gets into sort of the, the specific qualities of the racism that, that manifests itself um, and how they, how they interplay with each other. Part two is called Entitlement, Resentment, and Objectification, In the first post on anti-Asian bias in the South, I explored the problems that confront all racial minorities in a race-based social system, like the one we have inherited and perpetuated in the South. In short, no degree of achievement or exceptionalism, real or perceived, can shield any group from racism's harmful or even deadly consequences. We like to think that money solves all of life's problems. We also flout the truism that knowledge is power. In the absence of structural bias, i.e., for white folks, there is some truth to these assertions. When confronted, however, with a society that was not built by people of your background, nor built for people of your background, all it takes is a toxic cocktail of entitlement, resentment, and objectification to obliterate your money and knowledge, no matter how formidable either may appear to be. The Atlanta murders of last week bear this out in the most tragic terms. First, entitlement. Entitlement, if you will allow me to get political for just a moment, is not Social Security. That's actually a program that's paid into and then collected by the same individuals and is closer to a federal insurance program for old age and disability than it is to something liberals hand out like candy at Halloween to bready constituents. No, entitlement. Entitlement is the belief that certain of life's advantages are reserved for you and people like you. The United States was founded on entitlement. The United States snatched up land pursuant to the most entitled concept that I remember learning in history class, manifest destiny. Entitlement is why our country reaches from the East Coast to the West Coast. We felt we were entitled to it, even destined to rule over it. That was the very concept of manifest destiny. And with 45 white male presidents and overwhelmingly white male governance over the course of the past 250 years, if we round up, it is impossible to speak about this destiny, this entitlement, without labeling it squarely as a white male phenomenon. I feel the need to pause here because I know there's some resistance to playing the race card, making everything about race. But race is is just a reality of our country, and in many cases, I could say more generally our world, but definitely our country. Our country was founded on various racist ideas, whether people believed them or not. It helped them justify things like taking land from people, taking freedom from people, all in the name of furthering this experiment that we didn't slap a label of for the people, democratic, capitalistic, all these wonderful things, but we chewed up and spat out a lot of people and tended to do so by virtue of their background, more so than any other single indicating factor. <clears throat> so the fact that this country has the direction it has had over the past 250 years and the fact that all of the, um, that almost all of the people who have led it have been white males. It really does become a white male thing. And I know some of you might be saying, well, what about Obama? Yes. Yes, we did have, we have had one out of 46 presidents who was not white. And that's in, in that in and of itself is, is a good thing, but it doesn't, it doesn't change the trajectory. Um, you know, the this the this is to me. I, I conceive of this as a waterfall, and just because some of those, well, I'm not going to extend the metaphor too much. But when you have a waterfall, you know, the overwhelming amount of the water, the force of the water, the force of gravity has gone in one direction and has happened in one with, with one with one mind. So, I think having one black president, although it's something that I honestly didn't think was going to happen in my lifetime. Um, It doesn't fundamentally change the calculus. Anyway, back to the blog. So, unlike the economic benefits, the feeling of being entitled has trickled down to middle class, working class, and even impoverished white men. Especially for southern whites, the social construct of racism has acted as a pacifier whenever life gets tough. At least I'm not one of those people. For white men, this entitlement entitlement means not being overtly excluded or barred from any social gathering or public organization, not having to fear law enforcement, nor to generally expect unfair treatment while just living one's life. Pretty basic stuff, but it gains a premium status when you understand that others don't receive the same treatment. Sometimes, though, a crazy thing happens. Some of those other people, the ones you're supposed to feel superior to, they can become more prosperous than you. Do you see them that they can afford luxuries that you can or have a degree of autonomy that you don't in your life? They become educated at a level beyond yours, develop skills beyond what you've learned, and figure out how to work the system for their own gain. This phenomenon is something that upwardly mobile blacks have confronted for generations as part of the uppity characterization. While this is more well known as a racist reaction to blacks, it's not ignored when someone uh, of another background or marginalized status excels. As much as they can, they may expect for the, the gays or the Asians or another group to swoop into the neighborhood and do well for themselves, To many of the white folks, it's still their neighborhood. If Asians are doing well under this way of thinking, it's because of the services they agree to perform for the white community. In other words, it still comes back to us, the people for whom this community, this nation was built. And then from there, it's not a far leap from centering oneself in society to becoming resentful of people who aren't at the center, but who appear wealthier or more fulfilled. Once you convince yourself of the cosmic rightness of your entitlement, the process of elimination quickly removes most other possible reactions to their good fortune." In other words, objectification turns into the second quality I've I've pointed out here, which is resentment. I'm sorry, not objectification, I I skipped ahead. Entitlement turns into resentment. If you feel entitled, but then others do better than you, then you're the one that's supposed to be entitled, and you're going to be resentful. It's just, it's just, it's just human nature. Um, I, I, I suspect throughout much of what I I've, I've had to write and ruminate about this week, the complaint that the opposing viewpoint, the resistance that may come up, is that you're just really saying a bunch of words. You're really just talking in utter. Theoretical, your you know other theoretical nonsense. There's no, there's nothing you can really point to here. You're just talking about general things. But I've tried to make sure that everything I have pointed out, no matter how how vague it is, just sort of is an is more of a natural thing. It's sort of like you turn you turn on uh, you turn a light switch on and light comes on and, and you can see things. That's not not many people would would ask to see your, 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 your degree from any university for you to make that statement about, about something that's elementary like that. And in this case, I feel like it's just as elementary that if you feel entitled um, and white people in this country have been given every reason to feel entitled, it's just how, how we were taught. In most cases, um, then what follows from that when you don't get what you feel like you're entitled to or someone else gets more of it than you do and they're not part of the entitled group, then there's going to be some resentment. Now the last thing I wanted to talk about is objectification. So objectification goes hand-in-hand with this self-centering mindset. Seeing a group of people as them is from a grammatical standpoint a literal process of objectification it's the subject and object in grammar and them is an object asians have suffered disproportionately in this respect from objectification as far back as marco polo asians have been framed by whites as the ultimate them the very definition of exotic To the extent that Asians have pursued specific lanes to gain a financial foothold in the U.S., they have played into this perception. From the massage parlors and spas that were targeted in last week's attacks, to the restaurant industry, to academia, and the professional world, it is not incorrect to say that there are a series of templates that many Asian families have followed for generations in order to succeed. Therefore this the whole setup becomes excruciating at least from my perspective in its self-reinforcement the intersection of cultural culture and tradition on one side from the asian perspective and stereotypes and prejudices on the other is a crystalline objectification of an entire continent of people looking back on that word choice it probably didn't I probably didn't express myself in the way I needed to there. By crystalline crystalline objectification, what I mean is that it, it's sort of the perfect storm. It's sort of the perfect setup for objectifying a group of people. A group of people find that they are able to pursue certain avenues to success. And then the people on the other side of the equation who are observing this and who are sort of the, 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 the controlling, the dominant group, see them in those roles and believe that, that that's all they're suited for and it becomes and it becomes a, a very objectifying process and in, a, in the case of massage parlors if you feel like this is just sort of their role in your society to uh, provide personal services then they are they become and that's where they belong and there's, there's not people that you're friends with they're not people that you consider neighbors they're people who are part of the service, then they become part of the object of you receiving that service. So, in conclusion, I realize that I have have painted in broad strokes above. This goes back to what I was just saying about the general vague arguments I'm using here. There are many Asians and whites that do not fall into the parameters of the narrative presented here. However, I have overheard enough conversations among Whites and other non-Asians in my life to know whereof I speak. On the other side, I have had a few relatively close Asian friends. I'm a bit of a hermit, er ergo the relatively part. And I've read a number of essays over the years detailing various Asian viewpoints and have endeavored to keep my assumptions to an absolute minimum above knowing the limits of my expertise in representing that perspective. The tone this week has been significantly more somber than usual, and I promise I will get back to grits and such. What happened last week, right in my backyard, was too close to ignore, though. My desire was to make some sense of the senseless in order to further the conversation about making our way back from this terrible place. As a segue back to the more customary tone of this space, I will spend the final post this week detailing my own individual experiences growing up as an unsoutherner, trying to understand Asian cultures with a scarcity of inputs. And that leads us to our last post which is part 3 and the one that's all about me if I'm not part of the problem if I'm not part of the solution sorry I gave away the give away the implica- the implied part there I said the implied part out loud part 3 if I'm not part of the solution One lesson in anti-racism gained a lot of traction during the summer of 2020 decentering the conversation In a social media landscape that thrives on egocentricity and a blogosphere that celebrates the cult of the individual perspective, it was valuable for white folks to learn that sometimes it is better to pause to take our ideas and experiences off the table and allow time for discussion among the groups that are are impacted most and most directly. This week, by posting my views on the South's anti-Asian problem, I probably have not done the best job of decentering. But today, in this post, I will give you fair warning that this is a fully self-centered discussion. Full stop. End of disclaimer. Having said that, if I had to describe in one word the Asian presence in my world growing up, I would use the word void. It was not important enough to really discuss. It was a side topic, a random rumination here and there. For people in the South, slapping a specific name on something more general is the way the language works. All soft drinks are Cokes, for instance, and all Asian people were Chinese. I say were as a matter of hopefulness, given the increased popularity of various Asian cuisines and cultural phenomena, along with the emergence of other Asian communities in the South. I, I would think the typical Southerner doesn't make this mistake anymore, but I could be wrong. To be sure, when it came to matters of war, the Asians did become diverse to some extent for Southerners. Korea, Vietnam, Cambodia, and Japan were participants in the largest American wars of the baby boom generation. But all those nations and cultures collapsed back down to Chinese when discussing anything other than war. The first Asian people I recall in my childhood were the proprietors and wait staff of a Chinese restaurant in Madison, Tennessee, the House of Choi. My family rarely ate Chinese food, and we only patronized this one place, and even then, maybe once a year. It was also the only time I ever had rice. Uh, Southerners are known for their love of rice, but it's for some reason in my pocket of the South, it was all potatoes, never rice. So this was my rare, my the rare occasion when I would have rice. Um, I found the pla- I found the place, the restaurant magical. The building was pagoda shaped and brightly painted in saturated colors. All of the dinnerware and glassware was exotic, ornamental, almost ceremonial. Every wall and surface was appointed for maximum maximum effect. My next distinct memory was in seventh grade. Now, just skipping ahead, this should show you how sparse my sort of awareness of, of Asian anything was. Um, but this was when my family moved me back to Nashville or Madison, more specifically, where the restaurant was. And no, we didn't start patronizing the restaurant more, which is odd. We did live much closer to the restaurant at that point, but instead this is about school. I started school at Neely's Bend Middle School, where I encountered a number of firsts. My first gym class, which was traumatic, my first gay classmate, which was very interesting to me, and yes, my first Asian classmate, a loud, mischievous Korean kid who upended every stereotype I had ingested over the course of my formative years. I was rezoned to a different high school the following year in eighth grade, and so it wasn't until high school that I was able to settle in and get to know my classmates well. In high school and again in college, I had the privilege to cultivate friendships over four-year stretches. In a different context, I would be delighted to name my friends and to describe their unique perspectives, talents, tastes, foibles, and downfalls. In this context, however, of what I'm talking about this week, I find the risk of objectification too great, the temptation to treat each person's character as significant only in how it confirmed or contradicted my prejudices or stacked up against American stereotypes of their backgrounds. So I'm not going to go into all that. Suffice it to say that I have known a wide array of beautiful, complicated people, and that includes my Asian classmates, business associates, friends, and acquaintances. A great deal of my exposure to cultures outside the binary black white paradigm occurred during the eight years of high school and college. It was those school-based friendships that allowed me the latitude to say with confidence that I appreciate and respect the individuals I have known who are of Asian descent. Where would I be without the purposeful diversity goals of my high school and college? Would I still entertain simplistic impressions of Asian culture? Would I be tempted to harm or harass because I was susceptible to suggestions that Asians created disease or engendered temptation or poisoned my food? I sure hope not, because the projection of government or system systemic wrongdoing onto individual humans who just happen to live under those systems is hellacious reasoning. I'd hate to be guilty of that, regardless of my lack of exposure. As it stands, and even with all my diversity bombast, I yet feel woefully undereducated and underexposed to Asian culture. I can't recall learning anything beyond the names of the most long-lived of the Chinese dynasties in world history class. Beyond a smattering of poetry, I can't recall any significant Asian literature that I studied in school or have read in the years afterward. I was recently introduced to The Tale of Genji in a world literature online syllabus and was embarrassed to have not heard of it before. And I do plan to read that. As a general rule, we do not learn enough about people in general. When we do not learn, we fill in the blanks. Bad people fill in the blanks in the wrong ways and even the best people fill them in clumsy, unhelpful ways. I have a lot of blanks to fill. It's kind of unconscionable that my childhood awareness of the largest and by far most populous continent in the world and the ancient cultural traditions it carries was essentially a hunk of brightly painted concrete on Gallatin Road in Madison, Tennessee that housed an earnest but not culturally all-encompassing Chinese restaurant. When we know better, we do better. To that now familiar saying, modified from Maya Angelou, I would add, when we know more, we do more. There's so much more for us to know so that we can do more to make the world safer for, for our neighbors and friends. After the events of last week, I hope it's something we can make a priority. So I think that's probably a good place to end. I was rushing to get through uh this in my allotted 30 minutes and that's a self-allotted time frame but i'm I'm glad that i pushed past that and decided to have time for a coda on this i think to me that's really the takeaway we people want to fixate on well should we be calling this a race-based crime should we be you know talking about Anti-Asian bias, or are we just bringing up an issue that is irrelevant at this point? And to me, that's where the where the debate really ends. Why can't we just use this incident as a as a springboard for the discussion that needs to take place, instead of bickering over the specific motivation of this of this specific incident? If we truly were manufacturing bias out of thin air, then yes, there would be a a more intensive and and two-sided discussion to have on the issue. But there's more than enough documented instances of hate crimes in recent months against Asians elsewhere in the country and there's more than enough anecdotal evidence in my life from the people that I've interacted with. And they're very simplistic views or characterizations of Asian people. And there's, you know, and there's a, a, just a general culture of sometimes it's disinformation, but often it's just ignorance. And To the point that I was making in the latter part of that blog post, that last blog post, I consider myself a champion of diversity, but I've been way, way guilty of not being inclusive of the Asian community when I talk about these things. And I have a bookshelf with a fair amount of writings, from from black authors i majored in african-american studies in college the first time around and i have attempted to be one of those people who walk the walk although i've fallen short very very short in in many in many cases in many instances but i have not pursued knowledge of any other group with, the, you know, with the same with the same sort of ferocity, with the same sort of resolve, and that certainly includes uh, Asian Americans, and and Asians. I want to do better there, and I think there's an opportunity for us all to do better. And if this tragedy is the thing that puts us in that mindset of thinking about, wait a minute, what have I been thinking all this time? Just totally blowing off a whole continent of people as inconsequential to my world and you know this is the first nationally publicized incident that I can recall in in my lifetime that has that has put this issue front and center and I think it's an opportunity it's it's certainly a tragedy for the people involved but it's it's an opportunity for for dialogue it's an opportunity for understanding and for people who think that that's somehow a bad thing I can't get on board with that and I can't don't feel like I can have a productive discussion about that so if you know when the when all when the dust settles from this crime and we've and there's been ten books written about this, this, this person's state of mind none of which, which I will be reading or even thinking about reading because I you know as I mentioned I don't I don't deal in true crime I don't deal in intensive hyper focused psychological profiles um, even if all ten of those books comes to you unanimous decision that this person had absolutely no anti-Asian bias the discussion around it has been healthy and the in in the perception that there has been harm perpetrated specifically on the Asian American community is 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 you know not to be oxymoronic, but is real. The perception is real, and we sort of we sort of have to address that. And uh, I think it's you know I think it's it's a good thing to to bring it up and I'm sorry I'm stumbling a little bit now because I I, I just I, I want to convey the urgency of us reaching the, you know a, a level of understanding about this and not continuing to bicker over over the alleged race cart that keeps that keeps coming up. Um, I'm not going to convince people who, who believe that talking about race is nothing but destructive. But it really does underpin a whole lot of where we are in society right now. And so I think it is important to keep talking about it and to make sure that we we get closer to the same page. And we don't just use, well, love your neighbor and I treat everybody the same. And these platitudes that we say, meanwhile, the structures that continue to cause discrepancies in the way people are treated and the way people... Um, have, you know the opportunities that people have to live their lives while those continue to exist i, I don't want you know i don't want people's personal um perceptions of racism to override the this the systemic parts of it that are going to be difficult to dismantle because they're, they're they're foundational to how this country you know operates so it's just it's just food for thought to me, the worst discussion to have is no discussion. So the fact that there is a discussion, even if it ends up being a wrongheaded uh, an assum- a discussion around a wrong-headed assumption about a murders a murderer's motive, I, I don't think that there is really you can really say that there's been a bad discussion because it has highlighted the, the fear that exists in this community that maybe people weren't fully tuned into before. At any rate that's all I have to say on it um, and I will be back with a little bit more light-hearted um, content on the next podcast uh, thank you for bearing with me through this difficult and uncomfortable topic and we'll get back to um, looking at some of my blog posts. we're gonna go back and go in order and get caught up and I I hope that my new microphone treated your ears kindly and I hope that my voice as conveyed through this new microphone treated your ears appropriately and um, we'll see you next time. Thank you.